Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this morning that we can come together, that we can hear your word. Lord, that you desire for us to grow in you, to put aside that which uh, is sinful, that which does not bring benefit to our lives, and to follow you faithfully. And I pray this morning we would be encouraged by your word and remember uh, all that you have done for us, that we may live for you. We ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you again, Rob. If you go to the next slide, Dave, you'll see here each of the letters has a sevenfold pattern. It starts with the description of Jesus. He describes himself in a particular way, which often has a unique uh, input on the church and what's kind of going on culturally there. Then there's often a commendation, something the church was good at that Jesus says, I'm, I'm really excited about this. <laughs> when I see you guys and I see this, it's awesome. And then there's often a rebuke. There's sort of a, yeah, but there's some other stuff here that's not great. And here's what you need to do to make that better. There's a solution. And then there's a consequence for disobedience. If you don't change, here's what's going to happen. But if you do change, there's a promise for conquerors, those who repent, those who remain faithful. So we'll start with the book of uh, the book. We'll start with the letter to Ephesus and kind of show you how it works. So I think the next slide fills it in for us. There you go. We're going to just walk through this uh, fairly quickly. But after describing himself... Jesus goes to work diagnosing their condition. In verse 2, he says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, how you've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. Kind of worth noting, that's a, that's a pretty intense thing to say, isn't it? Worth noting, not everyone who says they're a Christian is a Christian. <laughs> and not everyone who uh, says they have some sort of apostolic ministry is, is necessarily true or right. And so there's a call here to test uh, that sort of influence around us. And, and I think especially those that go around talking about having, you know, special revelation and a special sort of ministry and there's lots of money exchanged... That should raise red flags for you. <laughs> when you discover that someone is, is pocketing money to put gold plating on their helicopter blades, that's probably a sign that they're not really working for the Lord. Just putting that out there. But there's a call to be vigilant about proper doctrine. And so Ephesus, they're patiently enduring. It says they have a doctrinal vigilance. So they're really good at staying focused on what's true. They're so busy doing it right, and that's all good, but then comes the rebuke, they've lost their first love. You've forgotten your first love. And think of it this way, they're so, they're so focused on getting it right, making sure they live their lives right, making sure their statement of faith is just tweaked, just perfectly, all their theological ducks are in, in a row and getting after those who spread false doctrine. Make, you know, they're publishing letters about it. They've got little announcements in the bulletin. Vote so-and-so made a YouTube video about that, and it's no good. Don't watch it, right? That kind of thing. They're very on it. But slowly, they haven't spent time actually cultivating a relationship with Jesus. 
they're losing a sense of their first love. In Ephesus, it reminds me a little bit of a marriage where a husband and wife, they've gotten very used to the routine of life together, right? They work hard. They get the kids up. They get them dressed. They get them to school. They get them to the sports you know, they get them to their extracurricular activities and they get them home at night and they're busy, busy, busy doing all the good things. But over time, they've neglected their own relationship with each other. And once the kids graduate, the husband and wife roll over and look at each other and go, who are you? Who's this person? I didn't even know who you were. I've been so busy all my days. And that happens. In fact, often they say, uh, husbands and wives will stay together. If there's trouble in the marriage, they'll stay together until the kids leave home and then get divorced. Because they're so busy trying to keep up doing the good things, but underneath that, the relationship is falling apart. It happens. It happens. And so the church is busy being vigilant about doctrine and enduring, but they've lost their first love. And there's two ways to read this. Some think that Ephesus has lost its early love for Christ, which is true, could be. And some think they've lost their love for each other. You know, they're, they're so focused on being doctrinally sound, but they've lost any sort of compassion or friendship or fellowship with each other. And so they need to revive their, their life together. Um, is, it, is it about their life with Jesus? Is it about their life together? Sure. Either one. Because Jesus tells us that our love for God and love for neighbor are intimately bound together. And so if you are all about loving God but hating everyone around you, are you really loving God? <laughs> sort of where Jesus goes with that. And so there's a sense in which it could be both either. It doesn't matter. They've lost a sense of love for each other. And so Jesus calls them to do three things, three R's. He says, remember from where you have fallen. I guess it's sort of like saying, remember what it used to be like. Think back on <laughs> where you started. How did this begin? How did you get to where you got today? Was it always like this? No. What was it like when you first began in your walk with Jesus, in your life together as a church? And then he calls them to repent. This is verse 5. Remember from, how, from where you've fallen. Repent. And then this, this great thing, return to the works you first did. Return to the works you first did. Make a point of stirring up in yourselves that same attitude and spirit you had when this all began. And I, I think back to, again, a marriage is a good example of this. A couple who's drifted apart. Well, where, what was it like when you first started? Did you take time to actually enjoy each other's company, you know? Did you, did you go for meals together? Did you spend time together? You know, the best relationships are grounded on a healthy friendship. When did you stop enjoying each other's presence? Return to that. Do the things you first did to build up that love again for each other. In this case, go back to the basics to stir up the love you would have for Jesus and the love you have for one another. I think that's so interesting. Isn't that isn't that a good word for those of us who maybe been in church for years and years and years? And we get so used to, this is what my Christian life is, and I go about doing it, and, and I'm maybe I have, I'm really good at, you know, well, that's not right, and this is right, you know, and I go about my life. But, but along the way, we can easily get into this sense of we stop 
we stop taking time to cultivate a relationship with Jesus. We get into the rhythm or the routine, a dead sort of routine, of living our lives, but we fail to foster that first love. And so the call for them is to do that. Jesus is glad they've resisted the false teachings of the Nicolaitans, verse 6, but in their prudence to make sure they're correct theologically, they've lost something, again, of their life and their love and their compassion together. And so what's the promise? The consequence is the removal of their lampstand, meaning the church won't be there anymore. The promise is they'll be given of the tree of life in paradise to eat. Again, a call back to Genesis 1. But that would have also hit home for them because in Ephesus, uh, there were a lot of temples to the Greek goddess Artemis. And in the great temple, there was extensive grounds and gardens. And in the middle of the garden was a particular tree that would have been the focal point of that uh, of Artemis temple worship. In fact, uh, the tree was featured on their currency. And so criminals, if they were fleeing into the city, if they got within a certain distance of the tree, they would be free of capture and punishment. And so it's no accident that the letter ends with the promise that God too has a tree of life in the center of his garden, of his paradise. And for all who repent and believe, you can come to the tree of life and be free from your sin and be freed from uh, the, the justice due for your sin and for, your, for the punishment that you deserve. So Ephesus teaches us that love is something you do. Repent and do the works. Practice hospitality. Care for the sick and poor. Stir up your relationship with Jesus. Love one another regardless of class or color. This is a reflection of God's own self-giving love. And so God's word to us this morning, I would say from the letter to Ephesus is don't let love slip, right? Wake up, remember, repent, get back on track. Get back on track. Smyrna. We move on to the next one. Smyrna is unique because there's no, uh, well, I'll get there. (laughs) I'll get there in a moment. Smyrna was an affluent harbor city. It had paved streets. They had a library. They had a gymnasium, which is fancy, right? Uh, They had lots of wealth and lots of beauty, but the Christians there were very poor, and they were facing persecution. You can see this in the beginning of the letter. Look at uh, verse 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. This is the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God. You can be materially poor, but be spiritually rich. You can also be materially rich and be very spiritually poor. I think of Jesus' words where he says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. There is a difficulty that comes when we amass a lot of wealth uh, to keep our lives focused on God. It just it, There's a temptation there to lean on our wealth uh, for security in life. That is dangerous. Jesus tells them they face slander from those who say they're Jews. You can fill it in now, Dave, if you'd like. They're spiritually rich. They're enduring persecution. I know your tribulation. And then he says, I know those that say they're Jews, but they're not. They're a synagogue of Satan. Well, that's a bit intense, isn't it? <laughs> In reality, they're a synagogue of Satan. Jesus isn't holding any punches here. 
Again, and we've talked about this before, the New Testament defines the people of God not on the basis of your ethnicity, not even on the basis of your Jewishness or not, but on your relationship with Jesus. This is what makes you part of the people of God. This is how you become grafted into this family. And so here Jesus is saying, here's these Jews that are coming against you when in reality they've rejected me, they've rejected Jesus, they've active, actively blaspheming against him, and that puts these Jews in line with Satan and not with God. That's why Jesus can say it that way. Now, what's interesting, what's different here? There's no rebuke. Smyrna has no rebuke. They're doing awesome. <laughs> Notice it's the poor ones that are doing great, right? It's the poor ones who are enduring persecution who are, who are doing a great job. And this is the heart of the letter. Jesus has nothing here to criticize. His main task is to warn them of the persecution to come, but to also remind them he's the one who was dead and rose again. He is faithful, and he has conquered death, and those who follow him in that will also receive the crown of life and won't be hurt by the second death. To die bodily is the first death. Um, but that means if you do that following Jesus, you have nothing to fear when the second comes around. So go with Jesus through the first death. He was dead, and he came to life again, and so will you if you follow him in faithfulness in the midst of persecution. So for Ephesus, Jesus calls the church to remember her first love, to repent, to live out their faith. For Smyrna, there's a call to be uh, enduring, to persevere. And now we'll turn to Pergamum, the last one. Thank you, Dave. And you can fill it in for us if you'd like. Pergamum was built on a variety of terraces, um, and there would have been a slope up to the Acropolis at the top, and so the city would have had this really neat kind of commanding view of the area around it. And if you were kind of in the valley around and looking up to the top of Pergamum, you would have seen all the various temples up at the top, and you can imagine people would have been quite pleased with that, right? Look at that great view. Look at that. Got that big tower up there. It's pretty cool. You know, my son always can see when the mill is far away. We come around the corner, there's the mill, right? You can see the mill from far away. Same thing over in Pergamum. There's the stuff at the top of Pergamum. And so it would have been very affluent, very sort of fancy. And there would have been a little Christian community there uh, that would have seen all of those temples and all of that, you know, affluence and resource as a threat. It would have been very scary. And so Jesus opens his letter by referring to the place as the city where Satan has his throne, which is interesting. Actually, in Pergamum, um, they had temples devoted to, to one of the gods, that uh, Greek gods, that was depicted as a snake. Also would have been, uh, so the, the symbol of Pergamum, you would have had snakes around all over the place. It was also a major center for the imperial cult, trying to encourage people to worship the emperor. And so uh, Jesus says, well, this is where Satan's throne is, right? It's sort of the hot spot of imperial cults, but also of this sort of false, false worship. And so it looks like Pergamum, their issue is they've, they have given up trying to be different. They've gone the way of cultural assimilation. They've, they've basically said, this, our whole society's going this direction, everyone's worshiping the emperor, and we've got our snake stuff going on, we've got our nice temples, it's great. What's the point of trying to be different? everyone's doing this, let's just go along with the flow. Let's just go along with it. He says, I have a few things to say against you. This is verse 14. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. This is Numbers 25. You can read this story here. 
The pagan prophet Balaam told the king of Moab, he said, um, we can't curse these people. The spiritual attack's not working, but if you send in women to seduce the men, they'll slowly turn away to idolatry. And that's what he does. And it works. And so the idea here is, is Pergamum is going the way of idolatry also, which when we remember when we were doing Exodus, idolatry so so deeply bound up with adultery against Yahweh, against God. The same the same tactic works really well well today. Your sexual sexual morality isn't just a matter of sort of a few ancient rules, you know, clung to by a few sort of conservative persons out there somewhere, while the rest of society's moved on. But sexual morality is the call of the creator God to a faithful man plus woman marriage because it reflects the complementary nature of heaven and earth. And so married love is a signpost to the love of the creator for his creation. And so the teaching of the Nicolaitans picks up that same theme that the church has gone the way of the culture. They've lost their cutting edge, you could say. They've lost their ability to say no to the cultural forces around them that would lead them away into sexual immorality. Hello, does this sound familiar? They're living in a culture that leads them away from sexual morality as God would define it. And the church is wondering how to navigate that issue. And so the earliest Christians here are struggling with this question. How do we obey God rather than human authorities? How do we resist the pressures of others who would say, this is what everyone's doing. Just come along with it. And so Jesus' response is pretty clear. He calls them to repent. If not, he will come soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. You may think Rome has the sword. (laughs) No, no, Jesus has the sword. So watch out, right? And it's his word that's going to cut through their sort of half-hearted spirituality as they're sort of gone the way of the culture around them. And so Pergamum is commended for not denying their faith like Antipas, who was put to death. There's at least this one guy in their church history book who, like, did it right. They're like, Antipas was pretty good. Be like him. (laughs) In the meanwhile, they've gone the way of this false teaching. So the call, again, is to repent. And if they do this, this incredible promise, hidden manna for the one who conquers in this white stone. Again, conquering is about patiently suffering and enduring like Jesus. And just as they encountered Balaam in the wilderness, God had also provided manna for his people in the wilderness. And so it's calling up that same Numbers and Exodus imagery. Just as you encountered Balaam and Balak, this false spirituality, this sexual immorality, as you were wandering in the wilderness, in the same way God is there giving you grace through this manna for daily relying on him. Will you lean towards the culture or will you lean towards God who provides this manna and seeks to, seeks to hold you during the season? Uh, the white stone with the new name, it's interesting that they say in Pergamum, a lot of the big buildings were made of the, the local stone was black. And so if you wanted to sort of inscribe or write words on it, you would have used white stones to make a contrast with the black. Um, in addition... It was customary at a feast to be given a stone with your name as sort of a ticket of admission. Like you would kind of show your stone. I'm good to go. I can enter into the banquet. I can enter as a victor into this meal. And so here Jesus is saying, you will get a white stone to enter into my messianic banquet. You've been invited as a victor into this meal if you are willing to repent and to suffer and to endure. Isn't that cool? 
A lot of people go, what's the white stone about? What's it all? Just look at, the, look at the cultural context. It'll tell you what's going on, right? There's, a, there's the, other, the other way the white stones are often used is in a jury. Um, you would use your white stone to say, uh, to vote for acquittal. And so the stone has multiple uses in the culture at the time. Is, it, is the new name Jesus' name? Maybe, as opposed to the old names of the gods and the goddesses around it. Or is it a new name for the disciple? Maybe, who knows? Uh, but the point is the same. You'll be given a stone which marks that you can now enter into this banquet, enter into my presence. And so it's a picture of rejoining into intimacy with God versus the false sexual immorality of the Balaam and Balak spirit in the culture at the time. And so to avoid that, repent and come into the true spiritual intimacy that Jesus offers in our discipleship with him, where you can be freed from guilt and summoned into this great messianic banquet. Isn't that cool? So instead of finding nourishment in something that doesn't satisfy, whether it's sort of these sexual, you know, this sort of promiscuous lifestyle that the culture was supporting, come and find true identity and hope and life and fulfillment in Jesus. That's where you will find your identity. And so let's wrap it up. Turn to the next one. There we go. Christ among his church is number one. Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamum. What does Jesus say is worth pursuing? Well, a sound grounding in God's word. Remember, he said doctrinal vigilance for Ephesus. Awesome. You need to be strong in the word of God. You need to be firm in what is true. You need to endure in persecution. This was uh, Smyrna, right? It's going to get difficult. There is tribulation around you. Will you go the way of the culture? Will you endure for Jesus' sake and hold on to him? What should we be wary of in our lives? Well, losing our first love, again, the emphasis on we can just so easily get into a routine that we seek to cultivate a deep relationship with Jesus. We can start to accept unbiblical teachings or influences. And this is what the other, especially Pergamum, was dealing with, sort of the secular false spirituality around them. Folks, this is around us all the time in our day. This is so applicable to our lives. What's the call for us? Remember who Jesus is and what he's done. Be faithful to him and repent. You notice almost all of them are repent. Put away your sin. Come back to me. Come back to me. And what are the promises? We get emphasis on the tree of life, nourishment. We talk about the hidden manna and our identity, that white stone found in Jesus, also the crown of life for Smyrna. All images that show up again in Revelation 21, 22. So what about you this morning? I guess I would want to end with this point. Again, all of these are invitations to come out of our sin and to enter into union and life with God, uh, to be faithful, to be holy as we live for him, to endure patiently. And so my prayer for you is, is uh, to take time to say, what is God calling me to do? What, am I, what do I need to be wary of in my life? Am I... Have I stopped cultivating a deep relationship with Jesus? How do I, do I need to return to what I first did to stir myself in love for Jesus? Or maybe, maybe that's not it, but maybe you are bombarded by the issues in the world around us and you find yourself saying, what's the point of following Jesus when it seems the whole world is going this other way? You're not alone in that. The church has faced that for 2,000 years. You're in good company. And God's word is written to a church that faced the same thing with the same sort of advice that is very much for us today. 
to stay strong in the face of that temptation, to repent of sin when we do fall, but to keep our eyes focused on Jesus and remember who he is, be faithful, and then again, the promise for us beyond uh, what suffering we may endure in the moment, this great, great promise of life and nourishment and identity found in him. So may we keep love for God and love for others central in our lives. May we be quick to repent, should we need to, and should the time come, may we be faithful to endure, even unto death. And I know that's a hard word for some of us, but this has been the word for the church for many, many years. May we be faithful to endure. And in enduring, even unto death, we are conquering. Jesus says this is how we conquer, by laying down our lives as we follow him. So would you stand with me? We're going to close in prayer. And if you would like prayer this morning, love to pray over you. But let us pray that Jesus would stir in us a deeper desire to follow him and a, a willingness to resist sort of the forces in the culture around us that would seek to pull us away from him. Let's pray. God, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for this morning that we can worship and celebrate you. God, thank you that you wrote specifically to your churches who you love, and they faced issues so similar to the issues we face today. God, I thank you that there's a call here to be doctrinally vigilant. Lord, would you give us sharp minds to know and to read your word well? Lord, to be... Uh, appropriately cautious of things that seem to be uh, look like they're good but actually aren't. Lord, give us a vigilance by your Holy Spirit to discern those things in our lives. Lord, I thank you that you call us to repentance so we can return to a place of intimacy and joy and life in you. And I just pray this morning, if there are those here who have uh, been following you, for some time. And yet, God, in our lives, sometimes it feels like we're distant from you and we're busy with life. Jesus, I pray this morning that you would help us to make the choice to give a portion of our time each day to cultivating a life with you. Lord, to give ourselves time to spend in your presence, to open your word, to pray, to repent to spend time with fellow Christians to encourage each other. God, help us to keep first things first in our lives. I think of, of Mary and Martha. Martha, busy in the kitchen, doing many good things, but busy and distracted from the most important thing, to sit at your feet, to spend time with you. God, we can be so busy even doing good spiritual things, being involved in ministry, being involved in, in trying to live out our responsibilities well with work or school or whatever it is, but forget to spend time at your feet. And so, Lord, we repent this morning. Lord, we repent of the times, the ways, the, 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 the moments where we have given in to the temptations of the culture around us. And, Lord, I pray that you would help us, like Pergamum, to stand firm in the midst of a culture that is far from you. Lord, I pray that you would make us witnesses, make us loving examples of your care, of your salvation in a world that is looking for hope and meaning in all the wrong places. Lord, would you call us 
in wherever we have been planted, whatever our sphere of influence is, whether that's at work or at home, whatever that might be, Lord, help us to live for you, particularly when times get tough, to keep our hearts and our focus on you. Jesus, we love you and we thank you that you call us to yourself. You don't give up on us. And this morning, Lord, we just pray over each one who's here and the various issues and needs represented here in this room. Lord, would you meet us? We come in repentance and pray. Lord, uh, remove our sins, cleanse our hearts, and then fill us afresh with your spirit, Lord, that we could live disciplined and holy and godly lives to the glory of your holy name. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this day. We thank you for this Thanksgiving weekend and all that we have to be thankful for. Lord, it looks different for some of us with family gatherings and whatnot, but we pray that you would keep our hearts focused upon you. We are thankful, Lord, for all you've done for us. Bless your people today, we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Friends, as you go, receive this benediction. Children of God who are loved and forgiven in our Lord Jesus Christ, may you remember your first love. May you be quick to repent. And may you be faithful in resisting the sin of the culture around you. Go with grace and peace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Love you so much. Have a great Thanksgiving weekend. Bless you.